welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom by celebrating the diverse and their accomplishments. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I'm really excited to be joined by Matt Kahn. Matt, Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. Matt, who are you? Well, uh, I am a person and I love to, to live and eat, but I think specifically uh, in the context of the show, I do a couple things. I founded a convention called GamerX, which is now kind of going by GX, which is a gaming convention for everybody that features and kind of focuses on the accomplishments uh, and discussions and debates around LGBT issues in the gaming world. Um, and then we also have a studio called Midboss where we do games and movies and stuff that are focused around LGBT kind of themes. So we have a documentary called Gaming in Color, which is kind of about why we do GamerX and, you know, kind of what the whole kind of movement around queer gaming is, as well as uh, a game coming out on October 6th called Read Only Memories, which is a cyberpunk adventure uh, in in this kind of in the scope of like early 90s point and clicks, but featuring diverse characters, uh, a lot of whom are either queer or, or non-gender binary that you just generally wouldn't see in a, in a larger scale game. So, gosh, let's start with Gamer X um, and then talk about read-only memories. Um, sure. So how did you decide to start a, a convention? Like, that's a huge undertaking. What, what is the background story of that? Sure. Um, you know, I grew up in a pretty rural part of, uh, of America. I grew up in, in a really small part of Vermont. And so, you know, it was certainly a very liberal environment, but it was just one where, you know, being queer was still very kind of odd and, you know, it wasn't really a thing that was, you know, really accepted. And so, you know, um, growing up, I was really trying to find, you know, my place in life and, I, when I figured out I was, I was gay, it actually really, you know, I think that for a lot of young queer people, when they find out they're gay, they're always like, they, they panic because they worry their life's going to end or, or whatever. But for me, it really confused me because I didn't associate with really with gay culture. And, and the more I kind of accepted that I was gay, the less I kind of got it because I just never really understood gay culture or a lot of the things that were coming out of gay culture. And it just didn't seem like gay culture had geeks that like me, uh, in, in that culture. And so I kind of thought that, that, you know, maybe I just didn't belong or I was like some sort of weird anomaly. Um, and as you know, I got a little bit older and I moved to the West coast and I found websites like gaygamer.net. Uh, I learned that there were other gay geeks out there like me. Um, and really after kind of helping co-found a startup, I kind of learned the power of like that the world is malleable and that like, if something doesn't exist, there's no reason why it can't. Um, and I realized that part of the reason why there's no kind of queer geek resources is just because no one's really kind of pushed those out there. And um, that kind of inspired me to start organizing meetups within San Francisco. And as I made these meetups, more and more people were just like, coming up to me and saying how amazing it was to be able to be at a space where they could be openly queer as well as openly geeky and not have to restrain themselves or act, you know, a certain way to make sure that they, they fit in with the mold. And as I was talking to people, it just seemed really, really 
um, like it was really empowering for them. And a lot of people would tell me like, oh, I, I, you know, I wish we had something like that where I live or it would be really cool if we had some sort of big meetup. And uh, I was like, okay, well, let's, let's do a big meetup. And uh, as these kind of things go, it started off just being like, oh, let's do a big meetup, like 200 people, It'll be like a one day thing, whatever. And as we started kind of just rolling out the ideas and as support came in and, and, you know, it just, the, the idea got bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually we're like, okay, well, there's no way for us to do this without launching a Kickstarter. And we launched Kickstarter. And from that, we got so much both hate and love that it really kind of took on a life of its own. Wow. So it just, <laughs> that's, that's quite a, an evolution of, of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> like, you start with some meetups and I guess that's into a convention. Um, so at one point I know, um, I guess I should back up. So I learned about you from Ken Gagney and Polygamer. You were his first guest. Um, and that's where I heard about uh, GX. And um, at that point in time, I think you weren't entirely certain if you'd be able to have a third convention. Um, so you are, there's going to be one in December. Um, but what was that like to have a, a thing that you'd done for two years that seemed pretty popular um, and then like to be faced with maybe not being able to do it again? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, with Gamer X, we've always tried to do like a really high quality convention in terms of like, we try to have the very best speakers that we can think of on this topic. We try to have the very best location. Um, and you know, with our first two years, I wasn't really interested in making something sustainable necessarily. I was just trying to create the very best thing. And I kind of thought in my mind, like, it doesn't matter how broke I go from this. I just wanted to make like, you know, I'll, I only get one shot to do this. And if it's junky, then the LGBT scene in the gaming world, like that's like the standard. And I really wanted to like come out super strong. And if, you know, then if, if that was, if that was all, then that was all. And um, so, you know, GamerNets was originally just planned to be a one year event. And I had really set my foot down and that I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't see myself as being a con organizer. Um, I saw this as more just being kind of like a one and done thing where it'd be like, that was a really amazing thing and hopefully inspire some people. And then, you know, move on to whatever my next thing is. And at GamerX, literally at the first one, as I was talking to people and as I saw like how transformative it was for people to be able to be in that space, I kind of just made that rash call of like, let's, let's do another year. Um, and, for, you know, and, and with both GamerX1 and GamerX2, a lot of doing that, although I think that we put on a really amazing convention and we did, we, we really kind of went all out we didn't really know what we were doing and that really cost us in terms of like how to negotiate with hotels how to price things properly you know we ran into all of these like roadblocks that you just don't think of like until you've actually run an event whether that be insurance or av or food and beverage minimums or at the hotel if you don't hit a certain number of rooms that you booked out then they charge you a penalty um like last year at GamerX 2 we had to pay like a thirty thousand dollar penalty because although the, the convention was really well attended the hotel was super expensive and so 
a lot of people didn't get their hotel rooms at that venue. And so we had to pay this big penalty. And it, was just, it was a mess. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, after the second year, I was like, okay, well, this is two years in a row where although it was super popular and everyone had a great time, like this is two years in a row where I've spent more money than I've, I've made on it. And I, you know, I don't, I didn't, I wasn't coming into it with really any money. Um, and although the first year was really successful on Kickstarter, the second year was not. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, I can walk away now, you know, being basically I've, I've spent all of my savings and I'm now, you know, pretty much in full, full credit card debt, but I can walk away knowing I put on something really amazing and I feel really good about what we've cultivated and I don't, I don't, I don't didn't really have any regrets walking away from it. Um, and so as I kind of pushed that idea out there, a lot of people were really resistant to that and they really wanted to see it continue. And so I just kind of put out into the world. I was like, okay, well, if you guys really want to see this continue, we need to ask for on Kickstarter the amount that I know, the minimum amount I know we need to raise for us to be able to do it at the same level of quality that we're, you know, that people expect it. Like, I, I just don't want to like go and do like a budget cut rate version of it. Mm. Um, and so I kind of just tossed it out there. Our Kickstarter video was very, didn't really have a ton of energy behind it. Uh, we didn't launch a big campaign when we launched it. I just kind of pushed it out there and I really had resigned myself to like, let it fail. So that way I could say, look, I tried, it didn't work, you know, that it is what it is. Um, and it just, the, the, the outpouring of support was, was really shocking. Um, and it's, it's just really cool that there's so many people that, that see having a space like this as being super duper important. And, um, yeah, I mean, if the people willed it and they did, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, definitely happy to keep it going. It was, it was just more of a case of like, I didn't know how we would be able to do it with the resources that we, we, we had for the, for at least for the second year. And I guess this is probably a good time for me to disclose that, um, I was a Kickstarter backer this year. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah, of course. Um, just so people aren't like screaming collusion or whatever, but yeah, I, I backed the Kickstarter, um, because I think it's really important. I think it's really important to have a, a safe space for, for people. We have conventions like, like PAX, which are super popular, um, where people don't necessarily feel safe and they don't feel included and welcome. And I think it's super, super important that things like GX exist. Um, so I was really happy to see the Kickstarter funded. Yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, we, we, it, it's tough because like, obviously the gaming community can, can sometimes be super toxic. And, and so it sometimes can be very, you know, it, it can kind of cast a lot of self doubt in terms of like, is this something that's important? Is this something that people want to see? Are we just, you know, screaming into the void and people are like, yeah, whatever, like you guys do your thing. Who cares? Uh, and I think that like just seeing the amount of support that came out, I think it really kind of reaffirmed kind of what we're doing and that it's something that people are seeing as important, especially because we put so little, like we put so much energy, I think into our original campaigns. And with this last one, it was very kind of like, I feel like we kind of limped out of the gate. And I think the fact that, that people still supported it so strongly showed how important the work we had done in the past was to them. So what steps do you take to make it inclusive for all sorts of people? Because I know it started as an LGBT kind of 
friendly convention, but you have expanded out. And there's a reason you're not calling it just Gamer X anymore. It's because it's inclusive to all sorts of underrepresented people. Um, so I'm assuming you have like codes of conduct in place. Um, I think when you talked to Ken, it was the first time that I'd I'd really considered having like gender neutral bathrooms. So what steps like that are you do you take to make sure that it's a safe, safe space for people? Sure. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of like ways that 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 we do that. And, and I work with some really amazing people that, you know, we all have different kind of mindsets on how and how to do that. And for, for me, I just really try to, you know, like I think it just comes down to a level of like base respect of like, you know, everyone who's coming here should be able to come as they are. And, you know, like that's kind of at the core of kind of the messaging that, and, you know, like what we say. And I think that in part, you know, that plus the whole name and kind of our whole vision, I think it kind of scares away a lot of the more, you know, just, just more toxic people that might, might come. Um, but you know, it, it really just comes down to doing safe things. Uh, like really, uh, simple things that don't cost a lot of money, like having gender neutral bathrooms or, you know, preferred gender pronouns or, you know, easily visible codes of conduct, things like that, that don't, I don't think that they, they detract from anyone's fun or anyone's enjoyment of the event, but they, you know, help, you know, a show that this is a space that is for everyone, but also for people who, you know, like obviously it's just so for, for gender neutral bathrooms, like let's assume that, at most 5% of people that are coming are going to use that. It, it doesn't hurt the 95% of people that are coming that don't use it. And the people who do, even though it's such a small thing, it's like, okay, like they, in the thought, in the process of building it out, they're thinking about me. This is a spot where like, they obviously, I don't have to worry. Like, do they want me here? Because they're thinking about me and they're trying to figure out like how we can accommodate their needs. And, you know, and, and really, you know, I'm, I'm a white cis dude. Uh, and so my only like lack of, um, you know, only lack of privilege is really just being uh, gay. And so really what I've just been doing is just working with people who, you know, know better than me. Like I, I, you know, we have people on the team that are gender non-binary and trans and people who like, we just brought on Tanya to pass. We were like working on the diversity angle and just like people who know their, their stuff better than me. Um, you know, like I know how to run it from like a, how do we get the word out? How do we, you know, organize all these things? How do we, you know, do, 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 do. Um, but when it comes to a lot of those things, I mean, when I first started it, I, I wasn't thinking about half of the things that we've done in GamerX. It was, it was mostly because I have the privilege of getting to work with people like Tony and the people who I mentioned who are able to come in and say, Hey, you know, you, you probably haven't thought about this or that. And I may at first go, that sounds silly or I don't get it. And thankfully, you know, they are able to kind of help me understand why it's important and why, you know, it's, it's, you know, something that, that people will really appreciate. And I kind of can help be that filter of figuring out, you know, is it something that is, something that we can do is just something that is going to not, is it going to yuck on someone else's yum, which is kind of our big thing is like, I want to make sure that everyone can come and have their yum and, and not, I don't want it to be like a really stuffy convention, which I think something like ours could, could very quickly become. Mm -hmm. Do you have a lot of cosplayers who come? Yeah, totally. And, and, and yeah. that's, yeah, that's one of my, my favorite parts. And it's something that we've really been trying to, 
definitely like double down on, which is just because like, I think it's super awesome. I think that it's super fun to be able to, you know, dress up as your characters and just kind of like, you know, do whatever. But the characters that people dress up as, um, especially at Gamer X are totally, you know, uh, things that I've never really seen at, at PAX or E3 or other gaming conventions because they are a little bit off the beaten path, whether they be like, mm-hmm. you know, gender swapped versions of characters or like sexy versions of like a sexy Bowser, or like weird, you know, like just stuff that like some other people, places that make it like, that's really weird in a bad way. We kind of are, we celebrate it. And we're like, that's weird in a good way. Um, and so, you know, just a lot of like interesting, you know, characters kind of around that, like Borderlands characters or this or that and, and, and with a, a bit of a queer twist to it. My favorite thing is gender swapped in in either direction. I love seeing people take the I don't know, the spirit of a character and reimagining it and twisting it around. Uh, I just I think it's so cool. Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, but one of the reasons why one of our bosses of honor this year is um, Natasha Allegri, who created Being Puppy Cat, but also she is the person who created uh, Fiona and Cake in Adventure Time. And so she's kind of like one of the first, I think, big popular, uh, you know, mainstream media people who does these like cross characters um, and does it really, really well. And She's like super inspiring to me because, you know, she's created not just like Fiona and Cake, but so many other interesting characters that have worked their way into the Adventure Time universe that um, I think has helped, you know, pave the way for stuff like Steven Universe. Yeah, I think I think you just uttered the words that are going to enable me to come to Gamer X this year. Yeah. And that is that is the creator of Bee and Puppy Cat, because that is one of my husband's favorite uh, creations of all time. He I mean, he bounces when he sees <laughs> Bee and Puppy Cat um, and he's like six five. So, I mean, it's not it's it's a really amazing thing to see him so excited. So I think that might be my ticket. And I can just say, look, Justin, we can go. You can meet the creator of Bee and Puppy Cat. And and that might be that might do it, Matt. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> we're actually, you know, this is, I can't confirm it, but we've been talking with her about potentially maybe debuting something at the, at the show or, um, you know, it's, it's just really cool to be able to work with people like that. Like a couple of years ago, there's people who I'd be like, Oh man, it'd be really cool if I could just like get their autograph. And now I get the chance right? to like have them at my event. And, uh, it's very humbling and really cool. <laughs> That's so cool. So what what has surprised you the most about this convention in particular or just like convention organizing in general? Um, you know, it, it's it's something where it just doesn't I, I didn't realize how much work goes into it. Um, it's something that I just kind of thought, oh, like, you know, we'll just get the venue and we'll make sure that everybody's like, you know, that we get some speakers and some sponsors and boom, we'll be good to go. And I just didn't really realize just all of the logistics behind it. And, you know, a lot of it is, you know, when it comes to speakers or guests of honor or sponsors, you know, everyone has a different idea of what it looks like and what they want to do there and how much they need to participate. Or, you know, if, if like, you know, some people are very flexible. Some people are like, if, if, you know, if you're five minutes late or this or that, then, then that throws them all off. And so it's been interesting just kind of learning you know sometimes through trial trial by fire just kind of what running a convention is like so you know um 
a lot of work goes into just a two day event, you know, where we're making sure that every hour has good content, making sure that if we're, you know, making different tracks, whether that be a game development track or a fun track or a feminism track, making sure that you don't like cross, you know, cross, uh, uh, schedule events against one another, that, that people might want to go to those same events if they're like really into the, that topic and then, you know, working with people's egos and like making sure that like sometimes when we have one speaker who's coming and another person will find out that the speaker's coming and they have issues with them and then, you know, working around that and kind of like a lot of it is, is a lot of like playing it by ear and a lot of it is, is, you know, like, like we had, we had our, our, our panel submission deadline and just passed and, you know, all these people just started submitting panels right after that. And, you know, someone on our team was like, oh, it seems really unfair that we're, you know, allowing people to submit panels, you know, after we already closed it. And, you know, it was, she, this is her first year with us. And, and I had to kind of explain to her that, you know, over the last two years, I've learned that we generally get like 50% of our panel submissions the week after we close submissions. And, oh, gosh. Yeah. And it's just, and, and, and so I had to kind of explain to her that, that you know, we actually already planned for this this year. And that we just, you know, I, I know it doesn't seem fair, but it is what it is. Like people, that's just not the way people think, you know? Um, and same with like ticket sales. Like you would think that like ticket sales would be relatively steady through the year and then they pick up, you know, right before the event. But really it's like people buy their tickets from the Kickstarter or when you announce the dates and then it is dead. No matter what you announce, no matter what happens, no matter how much excitement people have, no one buys tickets. And then two, three weeks out, everyone buys their tickets. Um, and, you know, it doesn't matter how hard, like I've tried push, 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 push. And the more I've talked to other people who do events, they're like, unless there's something like packs where people know that it sells out and they know that if they don't get it right away, they will lose out. They just don't, but like people aren't trained to, to think like that. Um, and so a lot of it is just like kind of same with running Kickstarter where it's just, uh, it's things that you assume looking inward and then we're looking from the outside. And then once you're, actually in the in the battlefield it's it's a totally different game and a lot of it is just you have to kind of just learn by doing it so let's see you mentioned about three things that i want to talk about let's um let's talk about panels for just a second so what goes into the panel selection process once once you're done once all of the panels are submitted or proposed how do you pick them um, it, it comes down to a couple of things. I mean, it comes down to figuring out, you know, this year we had like a way that we rank panels, both on like their like heat index in terms of like, do we think this is something that'll be well attended or low attended? Uh, and then also on, on how important they are, like, is it something that's talking about a really important topic or something super topical, or is it something that is just like super fun and super silly or whatever, but it really is not important at all. And, and, you know, we go, you could see at any, any gaming convention, um, and trying to kind of balance it all out where we can create. And then also, you know, I'm sorry, going back, uh, also putting it into different categories, whether that be diversity or, or fun or game development or whatever, and then trying to kind of figure out how to create a balanced platform where, there is a nice mix of events that 
are both fun and exciting and interesting, as well as stuff that that gives the event credibility and it's something that, that people who maybe want to come on a more academic level can have fun and excited by making sure that there's a good mix of all those different things, um, making sure that when you're scheduling those events that they they're running in a way where you're not like putting, you know, like Anita Sarkeesian's panel against some other feminism panel or whatever, where like, obviously then they're not gonna have a chance to, because everyone's going to want to go to the, the bigger one. Um, also like, you know, especially for us, you know, trying to figure out how, who's going to be on the panel and if they're going to be people who we can trust, they're going to not say stuff that's like super offensive or gross or that the people on the panel are, are diverse. You know, we have a rule of like no more than like, we we don't want to have any panels where it's like all like straight white dudes or just white dudes in general. And we, you know, a lot of the panel submissions that we get are those. So trying mm-hmm. to be, trying to work with them to maybe add someone onto their panel or, or whatever. And sometimes that can trigger some ego uh, with them and, and just kind of trying to, you know, work it out where we can kind of create a really balanced schedule where it's something that has interesting topics to everyone uh, as well as being super fun, uh, you know, like there are other conventions that I love and I'm super, I like the academic conventions, but I can tell when people go there and even myself, I'm like, mm, this is a little dry and this isn't like, mm. there's nothing really fun. It's more just like more like this academic thing. And I, I want to make sure that we don't get too far in that direction as well as not going too far in like the other direction where, you know, this is the only real LGBT focused gaming convention. And so we don't want to lose the opportunity to actually have these high level discussions that really can't happen outside of it. Um, and so trying to find that balance is, is tricky. And a lot of it is, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes it's like, you just try to make the, it's like playing a game of magic or whatever, where you just try to, right. create, you just try to create the best deck that you can, but you know, you, you never know, like people might not show up to the panel people might come hungover uh they might say something really stupid or whatever uh and there's just you kind of just have to you know just just make what the best thing is and then go with it (laughs) i i love and of course i would expect that you would have diverse panels um but if i see one more thing like the history of women in comic books paneled all by white you know straight white guys that happens so frequently and I'm going to scream. Um, so I'm glad that you're really, really cognizant of it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of bizarre. Like, there's someone who submitted a panel recently that was like, they wanted to do an intersectionality panel, but, or I don't even know it was a panel. It was like more like a lecture, but it was just him by himself. And it was like very like, you know, we had to kind of work with him to understand like, Hey, you know, it's hard to do an intersectionality panel. It doesn't matter if you're, eight different kinds of, of diverse, like you're still just one person. And right. so, you know, trying to help them understand, like, you know, the only way you can really have these deep level discussions is by having, you know, people from all these different other kind of viewpoints. I think in the same way, like if you're going to have a panel that's about feminism or women or whatever, and you only have white ladies, like, I think it's kind of the same thing where it's like, they're all coming from that, from one, one viewpoint. And it's not a bad viewpoint. And I think that, Something people need to like understand that like when people say, "Oh, we need diversity" or this or that, I don't think that people are are saying, you know, by being a white person or a white cis person, that doesn't make your viewpoint any less valid. But it's also a specific viewpoint that 
you know, it, it, it's good to see other viewpoints because that creates a much more interesting dialogue. So you started uh, GamerX in San Francisco, but I know that you've moved slightly for GX3. Where's it going to be this year? So it's going to be in San Jose, which is about 45 minutes south. Um, the reason why we did that is just like, you know, I don't know if you follow uh, San Francisco politics or whatever, but San Francisco in the last five years has become the most expensive city in America and, and one of the most expensive in the world because of the tech boom too, where, you know, all these companies from Twitter to Facebook to whatever, Airbnb, they're all here located downtown and the rent prices for places have skyrocketed. And so these venues that we were working with, you know, they're asking for, for, they were already horrendously expensive, but then, you know, they're, they're going up 30, 40% each year. Um, and we could not find a single venue that could accommodate us within San Francisco, you know, at, at any reasonable price Like we would have had to, you know, I, I don't mind events like Indicate that where they charge, you know, uh, over a hundred dollars for the general ticket. And, you know, I understand the point of that, but I feel like that will definitely exclude a lot of people that could go. And I want to keep our event. I, you know, one of my goals is to always make sure that our events are, you know, that you can get a ticket for under a hundred dollars for the weekend. Like, I just feel like, you know, if I were, you know, I'm in a better place in my life than I was when I was 18, but if I was 18, you know, like going to an event and spending $70 for a ticket, that's a lot of money. Um, mm. and, you know, and uh, to try to do an event in San Francisco with that, you know, with a $70 ticket price and with considering the costs of the venues here, like we would need a really, really large sponsor to come in to, 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 you know, make that work. And although we've gotten some really amazing sponsors over the last two years, no one has come in at this like level of like, we're basically paying for the event. A lot of the sponsors are coming in at a very like, you know, reasonable amount. But it's very kind of just like, you know, we don't have any angel investors or anything like that. Uh, so, mm-hmm. we, you know, we really make our money through ticket sales. And so uh, by moving to San Jose, it's still ridiculously expensive. But, you know, it allows us to have like, you know, for the same amount of money that we spent last year, we get double the space and the hotel rooms are about half the price for people who are coming. And it just makes it a lot more affordable for a lot of people. And I realized that. It, for people who live in San Francisco, they're very like elitist and they're very like, I'm not going 45 minutes south to San Jose. Like I'm spending my, all my money to have to live in the city. I deserve all the nice things and I get it. But at the same time, like, sorry, like <laughs> if you really wanted to, to be in San Francisco, then tell the mayor to find more affordable housing or something because right. San Francisco has just become like, if, if I haven't, I've been at the place I've been living for eight years um, if I had not been grandfathered into that, there's literally no way I could live in the city. I mean, the, a two, the average median two bedroom apartment in San Francisco is $4,000 a month. Yeah. Which so, is yeah. incredible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I am super blessed in that, um, you know, I got grandfathered into my rent and my roommates, uh, I've had a really successful business thing. And so they basically, they keep their room in their office, but they don't use it and they're out of the country half the time. And so I just kind of, I'm able to use their office space or bring in my team members in and they can stay in their rooms. And if I didn't have all of these amazing blessings, there's just like no way I would be able to have our base of operations out of the city. 
Yeah, San Francisco is one of my favorite places. I really, really love it there. I was there in June and, you know, I just I kind of bask in it I, um, when I'm there, especially in the summer coming from Phoenix. It's amazing. Um, but it's just not not somewhere I could even think about living, even even like Oakland now it's it's spreading out and yeah it's 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 it, it just boggles my mind yeah yeah no i mean uh in oakland so talking to some friends in oakland and you know there are areas of oakland that you know are are bad parts and there are areas that five years ago uh if someone were to say oh like let's get an apartment in this area you'd say oh like that's a really bad part of town or whatever and now these places are going for ridiculous ridiculous amounts of money and you know that's a whole other you know, discussion about gentrification and what that looks like. And there's a whole interesting uh, dynamic of tension going on right now in like Oakland mm-hmm. and East Bay between, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a racial element to it. There's a, there's a, there's a, a class element to it. It's, it's kind of fascinating and a little scary and it's interesting to watch. Uh, I don't know the solution um, that because it's, 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 I mean, there's, there's, there's benefits and, and, uh, bad things to, you know, each part of it. It's just kind of fascinating to see San Francisco change over the last eight years, um, since being here. Yeah, I'm sure. And I see the same, you know, a lot of the similar things happening in Portland right now, because I have quite a few friends there as well. And just this kind of like, okay, tech is booming in the area and what's, happening like people are being displaced and what what happens to those people and what kind of community are we creating and um it's all really really fascinating to watch and kind of frightening too in a way yeah um, it's 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 i don't know i I, i've been thinking about that a lot and about like you know i could spend the same amount of money i'm spending here to live in georgia or wherever and i could be like living very lavishly um but, you know, when, obviously the weather here is beautiful and, and there's a lot of great amenities, but one of the best reasons about living here is that I can be very, very open about who I am and what I love. And I never feel like it's a detriment to my career or I don't feel like I, you know, when people like look at me funny or whatever, I feel like they're the odd person out as opposed to me being the odd person where I'm like, you know, are you a tourist? Do you not know how this works in the city? Uh, and I mean, that's a nice feeling to be able to know that I can feel confident in who I am and not have to be like, oh, like I should, you know, conservatize myself up when I go out because I want to get like harassed right. or, or whatever. And I think that's that's something that you can't put a price on. Yeah, I can definitely see that. So let's talk about read only memories now. Yeah. Uh, tell us about the game. Yeah, well, uh, so we started working on Read Only Memories um, about just 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 under two years ago, and we wanted to make a game like so. There's a in creating GamerX, you know, so many people have come after us and they're like, "Well, if you don't like gaming culture, or whatever this or that, why don't you make your own games?" Like that's all. That's all I've ever heard is like, "Why don't you make your own thing?" And there's so yeah. many things wrong with that. But at the same time, it also, you know, it, it in a way, it's helped spark this, like, fire in me that's like, you know what, like, I'll take on your challenge. Like, you know, if I don't, you know, I'm in a position where we could do something and, and there's no one out there that, that I see 
that is doing it on a, on a larger scale of, of creating like games that have queer content in them. Um, and there's a lot of really amazing indie developers, but you know, I'm just not really seeing, you know, the games that, that feature queer characters in a way that I, I really feel like, yeah, they got it. Like, that's exactly what I want. Um, and so I was like, okay, like that's a good challenge. And, and I think that's something that we could do. Um, and it was something that, as we kind of like, we're like, okay, like how can we make a game that features queer content in a way that, you know, in, in, through the lens that I, I feel is important, which is like, I, I don't want to create something that's like shoving it down anyone's throat. I want it to be very, uh, this is not a good word, but like subversive in that I want people who aren't queer to play it. I want people who are just, just, you know, the typical ordinary gamer who's just like, oh, what's a good game to play? And they're like, well, that looks interesting. I like the art. The story looks interesting. Has already got good reviews, whatever. And I want them to be able to play it and be like, oh, this is a fun game. I'm enjoying it. And then be like, oh, and also there's some queer characters in it or whatever. And they're like, oh, but that's that's, that's fine. That's cool. It's interesting. Um, and really, you know, my whole goal is to just kind of normalize kind of queer elements to people who maybe have never seen them in games or whatever. So that way, when, if they play it and they're like, Oh, okay. Like this was fine. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe they come in with a certain, you know, we have so many people who come at it and they're like, Oh, this SJW game. Wah, wah, wah. And then they play it and they're like, Oh, okay. Whatever. Like, like I've seen at least three or four times where people go on Twitter and they're like, I'm going to play this game and I'm going to roast it live for whatever. And, you know, because they, they see that has like, you know, preferred gender pronouns or custom pronouns or these other things. And they're like getting ready to roast it. And they're like, actually, I actually liked it or whatever. And like, that's kind of our, our goal is to like, you know, create something cool for queer people, but also create something that hopefully will show people that are a little bit more conservative that you can have queer and diverse elements in games and it is not going to ruin the game. Um, it actually can create a more diverse, interesting experience, I think. I think that's something that um, that there have been a few games that have done, right? Like, um, oh gosh, what am I thinking of? Never Alone. Um, I think Life is Strange kind of has some of those elements too. I haven't played either one yet. I've been saying for a year I'm going to play Never Alone and I still haven't. Um, but, you know, I it, and... Uh, it's interesting to me how surprised people can get uh, like, oh, hey, that was actually a good game. Well, yeah. Why wouldn't it be? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, totally. I mean, like the, it's been really amazing to see over the last couple of years games like that or, or Gone Home or so many other games, I mean, even like AAA games like Last of Us that feature queer characters and they do it in a way that is you know, authentic and real. And it's done in a way where it's not hidden and it's not done for like shock effect. It's actually just very like, yeah, why wouldn't this character be gay? Or, you know, if Ellie is in this like weird, well, I don't want to give any spoilers for left behind, but there's, 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 it makes sense. And, you know, you could reason whether she actually is queer or not, but it, it makes a very interesting debate. And it feels very genuine as opposed to stuff where in the past queer people have had to latch on to things like Persona 4 or, or themes in Metal Gear Solid or whatever, where they're very problematic. And, and I mean, it's very obviously written from someone who doesn't really get it. And mm -hmm. it's gross and kind of weird, but it was the only thing that we had. 
And over the last couple of years, I think there's been so much more uh, content and, and so many other people that are doing it so much better uh, that, you know, now we have people like, you know, Catherine Love that are making games where, you know, just like weird lesbian, you know, dating sim things. And it's not, it's like amazing. It's like, that is, I want to live in a world where, you know, I don't want to live in a world where those are the only games. And that, that's like the dystopian idea that like these conservative gamers have. But I want to live in a world where there's a million games like that. There's a game like that. And there's a game that is about, uh, I was at Games for Change. There's a game about like rolling up rugs from like the Middle East. And really, it sounded really bizarre and silly, but it was actually amazing. And I like weird games. The more interesting cultural stuff that gets into games, I think the more cool games get spit out. So what's what is the plot of Read Only Memories? Or what is the gameplay about? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's like the, the, the plot that's like kind of in your face and there's obviously, there's a much more like subliminal plot, but the, the plot is basically that you play as you, uh, but you're kind of like transported 50 years in the future. And so as the main character, you don't really get like, there's not a ton of character development around you. It kind of should feel like you're playing as yourself. Um, and Basically, you're at home. You learn that you're a journalist in the year 2064 uh, in San Francisco. You kind of learn a little bit about the world and how things have changed. Um, and a lot of the the culture of what that world looks like. And a lot of that was inspired by, you know, myself and other people on the team who've grown up in San Francisco. Not grown up, but like, you know, been in San Francisco for a while. And we've been around a lot of the tech scene. We kind of see how things are, are changing and, and kind of where we see the future potentially going. Um, and then as you go to bed, you have a robot who breaks into your, your house, whose name is Turing, and they are the world's first sapient robot. And they tell you that their creator has been kidnapped or something. They they, they know that, like, they, they basically, someone was breaking down their, their, their owner's door and uh, their owner was like, you know, just get out of here, like, run, get, you know, like, leave. And so you, the entire first half of the game is kind of just figuring out what happened to him and uh, kind of unraveling that mystery. And then once you kind of figure out what happened, it's, you know, deciding what to do next, you know, like how do you react to why that happened? And eventually, and you know, it kind of just kind of goes into a lot of different topics about like, there's a lot, there's a group called the human revolution, which is a group that is very conservative and is all about maintaining the purity of humanity and that, you know, all these, these cybernetic augments and, and computers and AIs and, and, you know, uh, living AIs like Turing, they, they've really taken us away from our human core. Um, and, and you're seeing groups like that and they fight with groups like the hybrids who are people who have had like hybrid therapy because they need it for whether it be cosmetic or for health reasons or whatever. So they've had their genes spliced with like animal, you know, uh, genes and things like that, or, or people who are, are cyborgs or have, you know, um, cybernetic implants and so it's kind of seeing that that tension um and there's a lot of allegories and and you know uh things in there that you could definitely if you were to look at it from one group being kind of lgbt and one group being not you know like there's definitely a lot of uh uh i'm not sure what the word is corollaries yes yes exactly that you know to to kind of queer queer things um 
if you look too closely, it doesn't, it kind of falls apart, but a lot of it is about like, you know, you're seeing characters that are being treated like it's 50 years in the future. And so there's a lot of queer characters that are in positions of power and they're very, uh, it's very much normalized, but now you're seeing kind of the, the next, the next wave of kind of discrimination where there's all these new people that are, whether they're getting augments or they're getting, you know, whatever. And seeing how they're trying to adapt and seeing how people who may be queer or whatever are reacting to this new wave of people. And, you know, some of it kind of ties into the theme of like when people get their rights, they kind of forget the struggle and they kind of just start putting down other people. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of it is like, you know, I, I do relate to some of like the things like the human revolution says in terms of like looking forward 50 years, I get like future shock and I'm like, man, like, we really are, are starting to change what it means to be a human, even like right now. Um, and so, you know, we don't try to kind of paint the hybrids or the cybernetic people or whatever as necessarily being sympathetic with the human revolution as being like necessarily evil. We really kind of kind of put it from a very kind of objective, like we let the player kind of identify with however they want. And, you know, when you have characters like Jess, who is a hybrid person who is very caustic, you know, we try to explain that and that like, people treat her awfully. And of course she's going to be very defensive and very, you know, caustic. And so some players, they play it and they immediately, they like get it. And they're like, I get it because that's how I have to be because whether gender non-binary or gay or, or something else is not even involving queerness, but they, they understand it. And for some people they play it and they immediately are like, I hate that type of person. And that's fine. I mean, it, it, we want people to be able to experience it through whatever lens they experience it. Um, and, and hopefully they'll, they'll relate to whatever themes make sense for them. Cause it, it, you know, at the end of the day, there is no good and evil. It's, it's very kind of like things happen the way people react to it. That's really cool. I'm really, um, I'm excited to play it now. Um, well, I was excited to play it before, but I wasn't aware of like all of the layering that you'd done, I guess. Um, so how how did you even get started um in developing a game i have a lot of people listening who are aspiring game developers so where did you start yeah um well so with read only memories we had kind of you know we didn't have i i think the pieces when we started to make a really good game we had a really good um art person in our director jj and we had um, a really amazing sound person in uh, Tumelo, who's our, our sound designer and musician. Um, and then we had a really good writer, but we didn't really have the programming side yet. We didn't have QA side. We didn't have a lot of the things that we ended up needing. Um, and so we picked something like this bit more visual novel style because we knew that it was something that while it was, could be potentially a little bit limiting, it was something where the scope seemed reasonable. Um, and that's something that I kind of just learned from doing game jams and, and now doing this, like, although the scope may seem low, you know, if you look at our product now compared to what we put on the Kickstarter, as you kind of start creating it, you're like, let's do this better. Or we can do this thing or this or this or this. Mm. We just kind of started adding things on. And so what I've learned through creating this and through Gamer X and whatever, like we made the best thing that we could with what we had. And then we just kind of 
threw it out in the world. And as people were like, that looks really cool. I would love to work on this. Or, you know, or we find people who, you know, we want to work with and then we have something to show them. We're not just like saying we have an idea, which is I think one of the biggest hurdles that people get to where they're like, I have this amazing idea and I know it's going to sell a million copies or whatever. And I just need a team around me. And if we can make it, we can make them something amazing. But the problem is that everyone has ideas. If you can create something tangible, whether it be, a quick prototype or, or even just, just storyboards or whatever, something where people could go, okay, you have something here. Like something like I'm, I'm not just coming in and making everything for you. Uh, that was really helpful for us to be able to be like, here's our art style. Here is the story that we're trying to create. Here's like the music and the theme. And we showed it to, you know, like potential programmers and potential QA people and, you know, people. And, and you know, once we kind of got them interested, it was a lot easier to be like, Here's how much money we have. Is this something that, that makes sense for you in terms of time? Do you want, you know, if that's not enough money, can we do some sort of equity share where, you know, you get revenue from the game? Um, things like that. And, and, you know, once people have kind of bought into the idea and they think it is something that can be successful, then I think people are a lot more willing to be like, well, I understand you don't have a ton of money, but I think this could be something really cool. Um, and, and that's kind of how we've grown out the team is, you know, Although we raised $60,000, we've put in, you know, uh, this has been a team of about almost 10 people over two years. Uh, $60,000 for 10 people for two years is not, if you do the math, it's, that's like $5,000 a year for a person. Right. Uh, and that doesn't include taxes and everything else that goes with it. So, you know, like, uh, obviously that was not enough money if we, if we were to just do it straight up. And so for a lot of people who are doing it, they're doing it not just because it's something they feel really passionately about, but also... Um, we give away equity in the game. And I think that's something that people need to be willing to do. Like uh, if this game goes very successful, the people who are working on it are going to be very successful. And although we as a company, if we were to just have paid people straight out, we probably would have been a lot more successful because we're not giving, you know, we wouldn't have given away equity. Um, that's just kind of what you had, what we had to do to get started. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's like kind of the biggest thing is like, People, if they have a skin, if they have skin in the game, they're going to be a lot more inspired to want to make it not just, you know, happen, but also be the best thing possible because, you know, it's not just a paycheck anymore. Like it is, you know, they have their skin in it. And if it does really well, then they do really well. Yeah, I've seen that too. Yeah, definitely. So what platforms is it going to be available on? Well, at launch, it's going to be available on PC, Mac, and Linux. Um, and then shortly after that, it'll be also available on Ouya and, and Razor Forge, which is uh, it's kind of complicated, but we did a kick, when we did the Kickstarter, there was a free the games fund with Ouya, and then the Ouya got bought up by Razor, and but it's going to be on the Razor <laughs> Forge. It's going to be on the Razor Forge. Uh, and then uh, shortly after that, probably early next year, it'll be available on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, um, hopefully the, the Wii U, and uh, iOS and Android. Um, one of the nice things about creating a game like ours is that, well, one, we built in Unity, so it's very easy to port to different platforms. But because there's very little gameplay elements, the gameplay elements are a lot more in the dialogue choices, puzzle solving, or whatever. There's no, like... You know, um, it, it doesn't matter what kind of system it's running on. If it goes a little bit slower, it's not Twitch, you know, oriented. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to be like, oh, is this going to work on this system or that? Like, even if it's something super slow, like like the Ouya, where we were like, oh, uh, like even 
you know, it, sometimes the game runs kind of weird on, on that. It doesn't actually affect the game, you know, like it just, just might run a little bit slower. Um, and so running a game that doesn't have like, like physics or things that, that need to be running correctly or creates a really poor experience, um, that's been a big advantage to us. Like, you know, so, so, you know, porting it to, we've already gotten it running on iOS and Android. And obviously the, the, the we need to put in touch controls and things that, that make it better for that UI, but it's pretty easy, easy transition over. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if we were doing a game that was like soccer or something, I don't know, like that, where, where you need that like fast movement, um, mm-hmm. it would be a lot harder to promise that we're going to do it on this platform, that platform, because then it's like, uh, like especially Android, because Android, there's like 8 million versions of Android and there's 8 million devices and, you know, trying to make sure that it works on every screen size and resolution and this yeah. and that is a, is a mess. And then I, I totally understand now why people, they put their games on iOS first. Cause it's like, there's like three versions. There's like the six, six plus and like a five and then that's it, you know? Right. Yeah. I often wonder what like the Android, uh, uh, device lab might look like, um, <laughs> just like with stacks of tablets and phones, just like everywhere. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's really, really tough, I think, to create a really clean experience for Android. And like, I think that it's starting to get a little bit better with like, it seems like Android's moving a little bit more towards like six or seven main phones, like between the Galaxy and whatever. Um, but it's still, there's just so many different versions of Android that it's, it's really hard, I think, to make like a clean experience because, you know, it, it's impossible to test for every, I saw some graph, there's like, 200 devices that are on sale right now that all have mm-hmm. different different resolutions and different clock speeds and it it would be it's impossible to test on everyone yeah and then you take into account the the things that are like a year old and running an older version of android and um haven't received carrier updates yet and yeah it's it's really complicated i have a lot of respect for the people who uh who can develop games for android because it's it's got to be super super complex if you don't have the help of of something like um unity or unreal behind you yeah i i just remember as a kid being really against not even as a kid like six seven years ago i was really against apple and like iphones and stuff and i still don't use an iphone but um i just was really against how authoritarian they were with everything mm-hmm. and i was always like it should all be free and you should be able to run whatever you want on any device but now after kind of like seeing it from the developer side and also just kind of like being able to use the like the iPhone to iMac, you know, like how everything kind of works together very fluidly and, and it all just kind of works uh, as opposed to like trying to make things work on Android and like, you know, trying to have that Android thing converse with a PC and back. It is like, it's, it's, I can see why there's advantages to that like very closed system. Yeah, definitely. There are definite drawbacks, but there are definite advantages too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just super excited to 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 get this game out there. I, I think this is something that, you know, when we first started creating it, we just were like, let's make a fun game that has some gay gay and lesbian and gender non-binary and trans characters in it that is done in a way where people are not going to be like, there. that's a gay game, that's a queer game. Like, mm-hmm. I wanted to create something that is a game that just has some cool characters in it. Um, and, you know, we have... Multiple, like you know, in our game, I think that we're doing a lot of firsts, and like we have, uh, you know, a, a non-passing trans character, or things of that, or you know, where we have like stuff that just 
I haven't ever really seen in, in any kind of games that are more mainstream um, that I'm really excited about. But, you know, I, I think that as our game has progressed over the last two years, it's become so much more than just like a game with some some really cool characters. Like, I really think that we've made something that hopefully, if you're a big fan of stuff like Phoenix Wright or Danganronpa or... Uh, games like 999 or Virtue's Last Reward, things that are like these really, really deep philosophical, interesting games that are, are sort of visual novelty, but have some really interesting play mechanics. Like um, games to me have really spoken to me and have really been like, wow, like, this is really is an experience that you could never get with a book. You could never get with a movie or anything. Like it's, it's this nice combination of gameplay and music and visuals all in one really amazing package. And um Somehow our, our team of people who have mostly never worked on games have all come together in a, like a really beautiful way to create something that is, is really, I think, I think is going to be really relevant and poignant um, and hopefully is super fun for people. And uh, it gets really like, uh, it, there, there's some elements of it that are just like, man, I've never seen a game do some of the things that we're doing. And um it's stuff that like I could, it, you know, if, if it was done differently, it, it would just fall flat, but somehow all the pieces have come together and I think in a really beautiful way. And I think for, for 10 or $15 or whatever we're charging for it is, is I think is going to be a really awesome, unique experience that I, I hope people give it a try. And um, if people are on the fence about it because it has queer elements, I, I hope that they are willing to give it a chance because I think that it's, so much more than just a game with a couple queer characters in it. I think it's really something that, that we poured our heart and soul into, and, and uh, I hope people, you know, see that and, and they enjoy it. About how long will the gameplay be for it? Uh, yeah, so that's, that's difficult to, to judge. Um, we've been saying, you know, at least 10 hours, because that's generally the, the time, like, you know, when we've done fast playthroughs, it generally goes about 10 hours. But that's like, we have put, you know, there's over 100,000 words in it. There's a lot wow. of, yeah, yeah. And we've put in a lot of interesting, like, if you, you know, there's like 15 different items and, and there's like hundreds and hundreds, probably over a thousand different interactable objects you can interact with. And so using different items on different things and using them in different orders and things like that all create different, you know, uh, interactions. And there's a lot of branching paths that, you know, uh, if you play the game, you know, different times or you do different things, like you'll get a very different experience every time. Um, and so if you're someone who's like, I want to click on everything and I want to see every, like, I want to look at everything and use it. And then da, 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 uh, I can easily see this game going like over, over 20, 30 hours because it's like, there's so much content and, We've really, really tried to like, because when we first started, it was like, you look at the chair and like, it's a chair and you're like, you know, whatever. And you try to use the chair, it's like, you pull it out. And then now by the end of it, like one of our, like looking at a chair dialogues, there's like 30 responses or something, something ridiculous. And there's a bunch of, of interesting, like there's like a vending machine where we put in like 30 different flavors and it's random. So you have to keep on using it to kind of see what you get. And some of them have really funny, interesting responses and just things like that. There's uh, uh, like, I don't know how many drinks we have, but one of our Kickstarter rewards was that you get to name a drink. So we started putting in all of our backers drinks and then we just started getting really ridiculous with it. And <laughs> there's a whole bunch of random drinks you can buy and just, just, just a lot of, and there's a lot of really weird Easter eggs. Like 
stuff where like if you keep on using certain things, sometimes you know sometimes nothing will happen, and sometimes you're like, oh, you you made this Easter egg thing happen and it unlocked a totally different dialogue tree that affects the ending of the game. Um, wow. Yeah, we really went all out, and it's been interesting, like trying to wrap it up for our release on October sixth because we put so much content in it, and then we're like, all right, time to wrap it up, and we're like, there's so much to polish and tie together <laughs> that uh, it was really scary for a little while, and then thankfully now that we're we're, we're getting close, I'm starting to really feel like it's come together nicely. But we really, really went beyond our scope. Like it is so far different than what we showed off, you know, when we started in Kickstarter two years ago. I am so excited to play it, Matt. Yay. I'm excited Yay. to show you. I really hope that, that you dig it. I, I have no idea how people are going to respond to it because there's so many things in there that like, I mean, it is not, it is not a game that I think a lot of people are going to expect from us. Like it's just, it is like, it's, a, it's an M rated game for sure. And not just because there's like an alcohol puzzle. There's a lot of dark stuff to it. Um, and there's also some really fun light stuff, but it, it, it certainly does not pull punches. It is, it is, it is, uh, we, we definitely went all out in, in terms of the themes in it. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't want to spoil anything, but it is, okay. it's very fascinating to see it and, and have people play it. Like we, you know, we have a really cool group of people that we've had as like our kind of diverse playthrough people. So we've like been working with Carolyn Petit, who's one of the writers for, um, you know, feminist frequency videos and Catherine mm-hmm. Cross and, you know, other people like that. And like showing them scenes that, I know that if other people were doing it, they'd be like, this is really gross and weird. And like seeing their reactions to some of the things that we've done and kind of them being like, yeah, this is actually done really well. Or sometimes they're like, I don't like this, but seeing their reactions and kind of getting a gauge of like how people are going to react to it has been fascinating because, um, you know, we could have created like something that was a little bit softer on the edges and we really like polished the edges and made them super sharp. So I could definitely see some of the things rubbing people the wrong way, but it's like, it's the story that we wanted to tell. And I feel like it's a story that we're all like super proud to tell. Good. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, gushing about it. No, but it, it sounds, it sounds amazing. Um, and it sounds, I mean, it, it sounds like a game we need right now, you know, just, yeah, because that's life, right? It's honest and it's fun and it's bad sometimes, and and that's how it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my my whole goal is like, you know, I I don't want to try to like impress these people who hate me because I'm gay or because I'm fighting for what we we fight for. But I want to create a game where they have to acknowledge that this is a a qual like this is a game that is relevant and it is a video game in whatever you know like people are, are so quick to be like oh well depression quest isn't a game or this or that because you know mm-hmm. they come up with whatever criteria in their head that's like oh gone home isn't a game because there's no gameplay whatever and i want to make something that like forces them to acknowledge what we're doing and acknowledge the themes like you know like there is like they can continue to bury their heads in the sand but hopefully they're like okay like i i i get it a little bit and I don't know. I mean, it's it, maybe I'm just being like naive, but I, I hope that we create something that like goes beyond like the core of like people who want these diverse games and like actually forces people who like these kind of games to be like, oh, I don't want to play it because it's made by Gamer X or whatever. And they're like, well, I really want to play it. And then they do. It and they're like, nah. even if they publicly are like, 
authority on it, like they're like, oh, well, you know, like they actually hopefully it, it, it changes their mind a little bit or whatever. Right. Maybe, maybe was a slight tip in another direction or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how people are going to respond to it. I've, as I've learned over the last two years, like just throwing things out there, I sometimes I have no idea how they land and it's kind of fascinating to see people like just when I, cause I don't know, like before doing this, I, I didn't, I didn't really have any, like, I would just say stuff. People would be like, I'm just some other random person. And now having done Gamer X and Gaming Color and stuff, like it's really humbling that now people actually, I feel like kind of listen to things I say. And uh-huh. it's kind of weird when I like to say things and sometimes like things I say, say off the cuff that I'm like, it's really stupid or whatever. People are like, it really latch onto or things that I feel really passionately about and it gets taken totally the wrong way or, you know, it's, it's just kind of fascinating kind of seeing that change and, or, or just, it's been, it's been really fascinating, especially over the last year, like with all of like the bad stuff that's happened, it's just been kind of interesting seeing how the game culture has changed and how a lot of these like discussions around these things is, has changed. And uh, it's interesting. I mean, like, it's, it's, it's very, very different than it was two years ago. And, and it's almost like, I don't want to say that like the stuff that's been happening the last year has been like a good thing, but it's one of those things where like, it's like Donald Trump bringing up all this like immigration stuff and being terrible where the fact that he's bringing it up brings the topic to like the mainstream and it brings it to like a discussion. And I feel like all of this like talk about like, diversity in games, queerness in games, all that stuff. And despite all of the negative swirl around it, the fact that it's being talked about and that there's discussions, I think is like, at the end of the day, is like a net positive. And like all the people that have been, you know, like harassed or this or all the fighting, like all that's terrible and, you know, whatever. But I think at the end of the day, it is, it's almost like a net positive that, you know, it's like change is tough and change sucks, but it's painful, but it has to happen to like, we have to have these discussions. And the fact that we're having these discussions, I think has already started to change. I think people who have been slightly more conservative or, or don't get it. I've, I've seen people who like the, the same people who like two, three years ago were like, Game Rex is the worst idea in the world and I don't get it. And these people are all the worst are now the kind of people that are like, Oh, like that's a, you know, that's a very reasonable idea, whatever. And it's just been kind of interesting seeing the, the 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 discussions change and evolve and uh yeah i don't really know i'm going with that but it's, it's been it's been really interesting watching change over the last couple of years it really has and i think um i think i guess the way i feel about it is i wish that change that this particular type of change hadn't happened or wasn't happening the way it is but at least there is some good coming of it like um, the last thing in the world that I'd wish on someone is to go w- through, you know, what what Zoe Quinn, Brianna Wu, uh, Randy Harper. I mean, all of these women in and around the industry, what they've experienced and not just women. I know, you know, other people, too. But like, I would never wish that upon anybody. But if if it happened since it happened, I'm glad that it's at least spurring discussion yeah i mean and and that's what i'm like what i am so uh uh just like bewildered by and i i'm so 
like inspired by is like, even if, if people don't agree with, you know, the way that these, these women or other people that are in the industry are like going about what they, you know, how they do business or what they say, the fact that they are putting themselves into that limelight or I'm sorry, into that spotlight and like they're, they're, you know, like putting themselves front and center for that much abuse and they, they could choose to be like, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm going to go get a, a job anywhere else and mm-hmm. not have to deal with any of this BS. But the fact that they are like the, the gaming community and the gaming world and the future of this art form are too important to not fight for it, I think is like so inspiring. And like, it's something that I could, I, I don't think I could do. Like I've had, you know, Gamergate and other groups, you know, come after me and, I've compared notes basically of like the things that I get compared to like what ladies or people of color have gotten who are in very similar positions. And so I get tons of gross stuff, but it's not even close. It's exponentially worse. The things that they get. And it's, it's, it's really hard to like describe it because it's like to say like a one death threat or this or that is worse than the other, but it, it is worse. Like I can tell like what, which one, like a lot of stuff I get is a lot more like trolly and a lot more like kind of low heat. And the stuff that I see like that these other people are getting, it's just like, it just blows my mind because it's, it's, you know, it kind of helps me like reveal my own like privilege. It's like, you know, I get it and I'm like, Oh, you know, cry, cry you know, why is this all happening to me? And then I see the other people and I'm like, my stuff is like mosquito bites and it's, it's just kind of fascinating just like seeing the differences that people's experiences are when they're fighting for like the same thing. And I think a lot of it is that I'm, you know, a white cis dude. And I feel like that, 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 that gives people like they all of a sudden they, they take a lot of the things I say with a lot less like vitriol and it's really interesting and kind of gross. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, some of my trans friends, um, you know, I, I have some trans friends who, um, in their words, pass for male and, um, and talk about like the privilege that they are subjected to that they don't want, you know, they're like, you know, back when I had boobs before I had top surgery done, I was treated completely differently. And now that I'm flat chested and I speak with a lower voice, I am treated completely differently and it's really gross and I don't like it. And, um, I don't know that just kind of, it's interesting how something as surface level as perceived gender, um, changes the way that a hate mob comes after you or the way that you're treated every day. It's, it's just bizarre to me. Yeah. I was, I was reading some articles about like, uh, online commenting and where, you know, when, if, if your name, your, your username is like sounds male as opposed to sounding female, like it's some exponentially less amount of like, you know, hate mail or, or vitriol that you'll get just because they assume that you're a guy. And they assume, and, and it comes not just from God, like, and even women, like just, just, just people don't, if they think that it's a lady posting it, they just don't give it the same amount of respect. And it's just kind of like fascinating where it's like, it's just, a, it's just a couple of letters. You don't even know the gender could be anything behind that. And it's just kind of fascinating. Like, and you know, and, and it sucks because I see it, like people were commenting on that thread being like, yeah, like I, I started using, I don't know, I, I was using a different screen name on this one thing. I could totally sense the difference. And now I go by a masculine name because I don't want to be like dis, discredited whenever I speak. And it's mm-hmm. very like gross that they have to like, 
I mean, I dig that they are like figuring out the best way to live their, their lives and, and, you know, do what you do, but it sucks that they have to like make those concessions. Yeah. <laughs> well, we went down a rabbit hole of less fun things. Matt. <laughs> Um, so how can people find you online? Yeah, I, I always love talking to people. You can find me at Matt Conn, at M-A-T-T-C-O-N-N, at, on Twitter. Um, if you want to follow uh, Read Only Memories, you can follow us on Twitter at R-O-M 2064, or you can download the demo for free at www.midboss.com slash R-O-M. And the game comes out October 6th. If you are interested in Gamer X, uh, now GX, uh, you can find us in San Jose, December 11th, 13th. And we have some really amazing uh, people. You know, if you are into the more social uh, side of things, we have people like Anu Sarkeesian, the founder of Killstream and PBS Game Show, Jamin Warren, as well as more kind of fun, in quotation, people like uh, the creator of Being Puppy Cat. Uh, we have the voice of, of uh, Shepard from uh, Mass Effect, uh, Jennifer Hale. We have um, Adam Harrington, the voice of Bigby Wolf. A bunch of really cool voice actors and people in the industry. Uh, and that's all happening in San Jose, December 11th to 13th. And we're at GamerX. And yeah, you know, and if you have any thoughts or you want to talk to me privately, Matt at midboss.com, M-I-D-B-O-S-S dot C-O-M. And I know that I don't know who's announced it publicly or not, but I know that a lot of podcasters interested in diversity and advocating for diversity are going to Gamer X, uh, excuse me, are going to GX3 this year. Um, and I might be one of them um, if, I, if I spring the bee and puppy cat thing on my husband and um, we can make it work financially. I will definitely be there. Well, I mean, like one of our panels is, is going to be like, I don't know if I've announced this anywhere publicly, but like. We're going to have a panel with uh, that's going to be Anita and Zoe on the same panel. And, oh, gosh. Yeah. So it's just we're, we're trying to do like things. We always just want to do things that like we've never seen anywhere else. So they're going to be like, what? So um, we got some really interesting things planned. If you're into this whole scene of whether you're into diversity in games or you just like queer culture or you just want to go to a cool gaming convention that's a little less toxic than other ones, like I think you'll really enjoy Gamer Arts. Okay, I got to do it. Um, you can find the show on Twitter at less than or equal. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, or would like to be a guest, please go to less than or equal.com and fill out the contact form. If you have a few minutes, it would be wonderful if you'd leave a review or even just a star rating on iTunes. But the number one way to get people listening to the show so that I can get cool guests like Matt Kahn on is to tell them about it, encourage them to listen, uh, tweet about it, email people. I, I don't care. Just just tell your friends about less than or equal. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time on an internet near you, I am Aline Sims for less than or equal.